Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Lighthouse Bible Church on this beautiful Sunday morning here in Florida. Let's begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that after you created us and we fell in the sin of Adam, you did not give up on the human race. Rather, you had a tremendous plan to redeem the human race, all who were willing to believe in your son. And you sent him, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, here to earth, came down from heaven, he lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross and died for our sins. And he was buried, and on the third day, you raised him again. And in so doing, those who believe in your son, you declare righteous forever and provide them eternal life. And we just want to praise you, Father, for your genius, your power, and your mercy and love. Father, this morning, as we continue in the Gospel of John, and we continue to marvel at your son, and who he is and all that he has accomplished. We ask that the Holy Spirit would guide our hearts and our minds so that we could concentrate today and to receive all the meaning that you have in this in this in your word this morning, Father, and that it will also spur us on to continued devotion to your son and your word and to the fellow members of the body of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. At this time, let's all stand and we'll sing a song to begin the service. All right, you may be seated at this time. Before we begin with the message, there's one scheduling note. Because next Sunday is the first Sunday of March, we'll have the Lord's Supper on next Sunday, March 5th. March 5th, next Sunday, Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper next Sunday. I'm learning you have to repeat things at least three times, apparently. I don't know why. That's, a, that's the magic number. All right. The title of today's message is Father, Glorify Your Names. Welcome by the Lord Jesus Christ when he's in Jerusalem and he's realizing that the, the hour is here for him to go to the cross and die for us and for the glory of his Father's name. And we'll begin this morning in the Gospel of John. Please turn to God, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. And I will read the passage. The Lord Jesus speaking. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So after teaching his disciples about that grain of wheat principle, that unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it yields a great harvest. Remember, he was speaking of his own death. But he was also speaking of the sacrificial lives. He was going to ask his disciples to live, understanding why he died and why the father raised him from the dead. 
So after that, now Jesus picks up where he left off in verse 20. Take a look at verse 23. Actually, start in verse 20. And let's remind ourselves of where Jesus was before he took that time out to talk about the grain of wheat. Look at John chapter 12, verse 20. John 12, 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, the feast of Passover. Remember, this is a very significant moment because the Greeks, of course, are Gentiles. And the Lord Jesus took this as a sign that his hour had come. Remember, we saw how significant that was and the fact that he was he had come not just to the Messiah of the Jews, but also the Savior of the world. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the Feast of Passover. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come. Now the hour has come. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And where we had left off in verse 23, before Jesus talked about that grain of wheat principle, and we we will be continuing on this theme this morning. Jesus will be. In verse 23, notice he declares that his hour is, had finally come. He had been speaking about his hour throughout his ministry. John, John, the writer of this gospel, had been speaking about the hour that would be to come. And now it has come here in chapter 12, verse 20. And, and notice the word now. In our passage today also, now means now. In other words, the hour. He's emphasizing that every time he says now. Okay. So what was that hour? Recall, the hour had come for Jesus to be crucified and die and then to be raised from the dead and return to the glory of his father. See, in the father's eyes, all of this was one great event, okay, because he had sent his son down from heaven to accomplish the work that the father had asked him to do. And it it all climaxes with his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then and then the father receives him back into glory after he has completed successfully the mission that the father had given to him. So this is all one great event. I call it that it's more than one event for our eyes. But in the father's plan, this all came together. The hour had come for Jesus to be crucified, die, be raised from the dead and return to the glory of his father. Okay, let's go back and go forward now to verse 27. John 12, 27. Now, my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Why did Jesus' soul become troubled? I hope you remember that we saw him before with the same description. We're told that his soul had become troubled. And it was when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And there, that troubled heart of his was in empathy with his friends that were suffering because of the death of their loved one. They were suffering in the face of death. 
And now here again in verse 27, we see the same thing. Now my soul has become troubled. Again, this is happening. But why? You see, now it's no longer the death of Lazarus. Now he's facing his own impending death. Jesus is human as well as God. And so what we have here is a natural human response when you when you know that your death is upon you. He was just as human as we are. He had the same emotions that we had. And his death, moreover, was beyond anything that any human being ever had or ever will have to go through. Because it was not simply the manner of his death, which was horrible enough. But also what was what was happening as he was on the cross, the great conflict that he was involved in and that he had victory over. That's totally unique. No other human being had to had to go through that. So he knew he knew right this point that this hour meant that he that there's all this darkness that awaited him. You know, the imagery of the of the of the um, of Calvary and all of the surrounding area going completely dark for the three hours that he was suffering for the sins of the world. Well, that was that picture is something that he saw clearly and all all that that meant his arrest in the garden. The grief of that, the beatings he would suffer. The trials that he would go through, the walk to the cross and the agony of that, his hands and feet nailed to the wood, the crown of thorns. The, the vicious hatred of the mob which turned on him so soon after they welcomed him into the city of Jerusalem. But beyond that, his father judged sin in his flesh. So in his humanity, he was troubled. He was disturbed. Of course he was. If, that, if he hadn't been, then we ought to question his humanity. In other words, some people want to think that Jesus is above it all, that he's that maybe he's just playing a role or maybe that 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 God for a minute is, you know, is taking on a human personality. Nothing of the kind. Jesus is completely human. But for one thing, he never sinned. He never sinned. And here we see the ultimate reason why he's going to endure all that darkness. Okay. It is take your take your let's take our minds off ourselves for a minute. All right. We know most of us anyway, that he died for our sins. Right. But the most profound thing of all is what he says very simply. Father, glorify your name. He's saying that in the face of understanding that his hour had come and all that that would mean for him. He was going to endure everything I just described and more. For the sake of the Father's name, that's why he came. He came to do the will of his Father. Whenever he was glorified, he, he, he deflected that glory to his Father. By the way, Father is going to do the same thing. We're going to see that today, the glory that, that they sort of passed back and forth, if I could, I could put it that way. So that's, that's the ultimate reason why Jesus went to the cross. The Father's name had been sullied, had been trashed by the fact that the human being sinned and rebelled against him. And, and it, were it not for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, not his, the very holiness of God would have, would have remained in the minds of his fallen creatures. The very holiness of God would be in question. The angels would take a look at this and say, wait a minute. God is holy. God is righteous. He can't allow this to continue. He cannot allow sin to be unaddressed. 
And so Jesus steps in there and, and he takes on the burden of sin, not only for us, but most importantly, so that his father's name would be glorified. That's so important to understand about the cross. Many people don't understand that. It's one of the virtues, by the way, of taking a verse-by-verse expository explanation of of a book of the Bible is that you you, you come to terms with everything. There are things that you would not have thought about. By the way, if I were... There's a lot of pastors who they take a topical approach to the Bible. In other words, they maybe it's the topic of the week. Maybe it's something that they're interested in teaching. And, and you know, there's I'm not going to criticize that. But the difficulty with that is that you never have a comprehensive understanding in the manner in which the Lord has inspired his word. And so you might always you might miss this if you're a, if you're teaching and every time you teach about the cross okay you only talk about the fact that jesus died for our sins you're missing so so much and the really the best way and indeed the only way to have to learn and absorb and appreciate and be be amazed and built up is to read all of it and read it in this in the order in which the lord has established it okay in any book it's a great discipline um, it's the only way i'll teach the bible okay so as a result, by the way, in the uh, Thursday evening Bible studies, we've been in the book of Isaiah, I think, since the Civil War, perhaps. I don't know. Something like that. Well, it was a big book, you know. But anyway, that's the way to study the Bible and to, the, to learn the Bible. All right. So here we have, if I could call this, this mingling, this incredible mingling of both sorrow and joy in the human heart of Jesus Christ. Sorrow and joy. And again, that is not foreign to our human experience either. I mean, anytime you have love and something happens to the person that you love and you may know it's for their best, but it's going to hurt you. We have the same thing. We have this sublime combination in our hearts of sorrow and joy. Sorrow that I have to, my child has to leave. Joy that he's living out the destiny that the Lord has for him, for example. And there's many other situations like that. It happened to Jesus in his heart. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven speaking. Now, this voice is speaking to Jesus, and the, the specific words are directed at Jesus. But we're going to see in a moment that this, this voice, it's really the sound of this voice, is really also a sign to the crowd. They didn't, we'll see this in a minute, they didn't really recognize what was being said or even who was speaking, really. I mean, they said it's, it's thunder, they said it's an angel. No, it was God the Father, but it was a sign for them. Okay, and we'll see that in a minute. A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Speaking of the book of Isaiah, if one thinks about God glorifying his name, the fact of the matter is is you can go to the Old Testament because he glorified his name in ways too numerous to mention. We have seen this in our study of the book of Isaiah. By the way, another, another advantage of studying two books of the Bible at the same time 
I not on the same day, but having a Bible study with Isaiah and a Sunday series on John is that you see all of the interconnections. Marvelous. Every book of the Bible is interconnected with every other book in some way. But two of the greatest, I mean, every book of the Bible is great because there's God, God's word. But in terms of the themes and the subject matter and the awesomeness of how we see the Lord and the, and the Father and the Spirit, Isaiah and John I know, are, are really amazing books that complement each other a lot. So we're seeing that also. In any event, in the Old Testament, God glorified his name in many, 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 many ways. You know, he rescued his people again and again from the grip of foreign nations, right? Starting with Egypt. And think about how he was glorified in the miraculous way in which he rescued his people and delivered them out of Egypt into freedom. All the miracles that were involved, the 10 plagues that Moses um, was given the authority to issue upon the people of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea. His name was glorified far and wide in the book of Joshua. When Joshua steps into the promised land and he, and he, he for the first time, is confronting um, the, the, the pagans, they say to him, we're afraid of you people. We have heard of the power of your God. So we glorified it then. We've seen in the book of Isaiah, those of us who have been studying that together, that when the when the Assyrian army of 130, 50,000 was descending on Jerusalem, and the, the Lord had promised the king of Judah, Hezekiah, that he would deliver him. In one evening, the Lord had given some, some kind of disease such that over 100,000 soldiers perished on the ground that night. Miraculous. His name was glorified. We've seen most recently in the book of Isaiah that the, that the Jews would be in exile and captives in Babylon. And yet God would come through for them in another unexpected way, this time with a Gentile king by the name of Cyrus, who would, who would conquer the Babylons and allow them to go back to their home. And again, God would be glorified. He'd be glorified because of his power. He'd also be glorified because he could foretell the future and it would come to pass. And, and we could spend weeks just going through the Old Testament and seeing all the places where the Lord glorified his name. The pillar of fire in the, in the wilderness. Think about it. You're, you're, you're the people of Israel and you're wandering through the wilderness. And every night there's a pillar of fire demonstrating the glory of God. God God's glory was also present in the temple. And I could go on and on. But here's the thing. You know, we hear the glory of God a lot. We have our own, I guess, impression of it. But we should stop and define that so that we're clear on what we mean by that, that expression. And this is, this is a pretty good description of the glory of God as it's presented in the Bible. And that is, it's revelation. Okay? It's demonstration. It's God showing. Showing what? His character and his nature, that he's holy, that he's just, that he's powerful. But he's doing it in a way that his people can see it. Okay, can actually see the glory of God on display. Like that pillar of fire, like that miracle. And we're going to see the greatest of all ways in which God has revealed his glory as well in the Gospel of John. But here's the thing about it now. He is directing this showing, showing, revealing of his character and nature to his intelligent, 
creations, right? So that people could actually, who could actually hear, see, and understand the meaning is intelligent creations. That's the glory of God. When he reveals his character and nature to his intelligent creations. Now, when I say intelligent creations, there's two, really. There's the angels and there's humans. The angels marvel at the things, by the way, the angels, believe it or not, are marveling right now at what the Holy Spirit is doing through the word of God in your hearts. There are things that have been revealed in the scriptures and the New Testament epistles that had never been heard before. The very act that we're going to see in the scriptures of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You know, it's interesting. Human beings, when they look at Jesus Christ, okay, the real thing that's hard for people to really believe often is that he's God, right? There's so many cults and unbelievers. He's not God, right? Well, you know what's interesting from the point of view of the angels? You know what the unbelievable thing about Jesus is? That he's human. That he's human. They've known him as the son of God. But the miracle is that he became human. So the angels marvel at the glory of God, displaying what? His grace and his genius and how he rescued human human, human beings. In any event. So again, the glory of God is, is the revelation, the demonstration, showing, manifesting his character and nature to his intelligent creations. Like Jesus would say at the end of chapter 11, when he talked to, to Martha just before he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would what? see the glory of God? And of course, you have to have eyes to see it, which is a whole other issue, which we, which we covered. So God's character and nature. What do we mean by that? Well, that he's sovereign, that he's in control of everything, that he knows all things. That's why he can predict the future. And to the day, and when he says something's going to happen at a certain time, he's got the power and authority to bring that to pass. He's also merciful. And as a matter of fact, when Moses asked the Lord on the mountain to show his glory, he said, my glory is that I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's what he saw as the as the thing that he most wanted Moses to understand about himself. His justice, his righteousness. That's all part of what God wants his intelligent creations to know about him. And he reveals it in ways that are intended to make the point dramatic in whatever way. By the way, you know, today we don't really have, despite what some people want to say, Miracles, signs, and wonders given by God. Okay, we may have them, but that's not how God deals with his people anymore. We'll table that discussion. But, you see, we still, it is a matter of fact, we have demonstrations and revelation of the glory of God far beyond anything that the nation of Israel ever saw. And, you know, it's revealed right here in the Bible. Right? The very in Second Corinthians chapter three, it's talk, God talks about revealing His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we don't we don't see the face of Christ; we see it in His Word. This is where the greatest glorification of God occurs now for you and for me. But now let's turn to Isaiah chapter forty. Since I'm speaking of Isaiah. We're going to see a passage that gives a pretty good example of what it means for God to be glorified. 
Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. This is the first chapter of the second half of the book of Isaiah. Okay. And in the second half of the book of Isaiah, what we get is demonstration after demonstration of the glory of God. And let me just say this, that not only is it a demonstration that we can see, it's also a prediction. It's prophecy which in and of itself is a revelation of the glory of God, that he could say things through his prophets that wouldn't come to pass for dozens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. But here, let's read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Say, the glory of the Lord is revealed. What is revealed? What is seen? And all flesh, every human being will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But here's the thing. The Gospel of John comes along and what the Gospel of John does is to show the absolute greatest manifestation of the glory of God. And it is quite simply his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest manifestation of the glory of God, the greatest revelation of who God is and his character, all the things that he is holy. Remember, Jesus is going to go to the cross to glorify the name of the Father, his holiness. Jesus is the most tremendous demonstration of God's character and his nature. Look at John chapter 1. Let's go all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 14. God's son, called the word of God at the beginning of the gospel of John, has existed forever. And yet there was a moment in time when God's son became a human being and was born. He, as it were, as Jesus says, came down from heaven and came to live among men. And at the, at the very moment that, that this happened, notice what John is inspired to write about. This is God becoming human. Jesus, okay, his uniqueness. John 1, 14. And the word, remember, that's the son of God from all of eternity, became flesh, human, both now, God, man, and dwelt among us. See, he was here on earth. He was here on earth. People saw, this is what I mean by revelation of his glory. People saw him, people heard him, people write about him. Dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The apostles saw his glory in so many ways. You know, um, crowds came in and out of the public ministry of Jesus, but the disciples remained. They saw it all. And, and John and the other gospel writers as well make a point of that again and again, that disciples were there and they saw and they believed or whatever how their reactions were. Sometimes they were incredulous. Sometimes they missed the point. They were there all the time. We saw his glory. I want you to notice how John describes this glory. First of all, as of the only begotten from the father, meaning he's God. But notice what comes after that full of grace and truth. What is he saying? He's saying that when Jesus Christ revealed the character of God, his father 
he re- he revealed it in the mo- in the most incredible way by showing how gracious the Father is, and also understanding that the key for human beings is to know the truth and believe it. That that's where the glory of God came to the forefront in terms of the life of Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth. Now, how does the Son glorify the Father? And it's real straightforward. Again, we see this again and again in the Gospel of John. Quite simply, the Father gave Jesus work to complete. Jesus obeyed the Father in every respect. We're going to see when Jesus is on the cross in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, that he even speaks some words to fulfill Scripture. I am thirsty. Why did he say that? He said that as because it was part of the work that the Father had given him to perform. It was part of his obedience. His obedience was complete in every respect. We'll never get there completely, but we should be on our, we strive for the same thing. You know, this is not just an academic exercise when we gather together and hear the word of God. The point of this is to understand what he's asking us to do, but only, by the way, after he shows us who we are and who he is, right? But then he's asking us for for measures of obedience that he knows we can handle, really. We never can get the, the, the level that Jesus got to, of course, but... We can't have our hearts changed. We can't understand that because Jesus died for us, we ought to live for him, for example. And there's a lot of obedience in that. There's a lot of obedience in understanding that that God's word is powerful and that we are, and the way in which we, we grow in, in understanding Christ and eternal life and everything else that God wants us is to c- c- continue to read and hear from God's word. That is obedience to God. All right. In any event. That's how the son glorifies the father. He completed all the work that the father gave him to perform. Let's go forward to John chapter 17 now. John chapter 17. Speaking of the father, this is a whole chapter, John chapter 17, on Jesus Christ talking to his father. John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. And in verse 4, he makes no bones about it. Notice what he says to the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He understood how he glorified his Father. He understood how he was to reveal the character and nature, the grace of God, the truth of God, the power of God. He understood that the best way that anyone ever revealed the glory of God was on the obedience God, God, Jesus Christ gave to every command of his Father. We think about the miracles, of course, and sure, those were signs that demonstrated that Jesus is who he says he is, the power of God. But in all the particulars of, of his life, the, the hard things that he said to people, that I'm sure at a human level, he, he realized the consequences of some of these things that he said. He knew when he talked about his relationship with his father that the Jews would accuse him of being a heretic. That was, that was really the thing that got them started in their hatred of him. Okay, So he knew, all, so he did it anyway. The words that he said, the kindnesses that he showed, in all kinds of ways, if you look through everything that, that, that John describes, 
concerning Jesus Christ in his ministry, all of that was in obedience to his father. He said it over and over again. I do nothing except what the father asked me. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Okay, that's how that's how he did it. But I want you to notice something else in verse five. Now, father, here's that word now again. Right now, father, glorify me together with yourself. Isn't it a bold thing? Don't you think? I mean, if I were to say this to God, you know, I, I, I would be unbelievably arrogant. Glorify me. <laughs> Only one human being could ever say that. And that's Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice the, the tremendous back and forth here. Look at verse four again. I glorified you on the earth. How? I accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me. But notice what he says after that. Together with yourself. With the glory, and notice this, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. What a, what a, what a, a beautiful moment when we have, we're starting to see, you know, the, 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 in more clear terms who Jesus really is. That he, yes, he, he has been with the Father for all of eternity and he shared the glory of the Father from all of eternity. But what we see here in verse 5 is this. That the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are inseparable. That's why he can talk about it the way he does. He understood that Jesus understood when I'm glorified, my Father's glorified. So when I ask him to glorify me, I'm also asking him to glorify himself. You see that? When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. When the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies him in return. Indeed, they're inseparable. And we'll see more of that as we continue in the Gospel of John. Okay, let's go back to our passage this morning and continue in verse 29. John chapter 12, verse 29. The passage is from about verse 20 on to today, right to here, about Jesus speaking with his disciples. But in, in, in verse 29, as, as, as it were, there were there was the sort of on stage and you have Jesus and his disciples. But then in the background, it's dark and then the lights come on and the crowd's back there. Notice verse verse 29. Now, so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it. Now, here, hearing that that sound, right? It was the voice of the father. They mistook it for an angel and perhaps thunder. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. I'll bet it did. <laughs> I mean, the sound of it was like tremendous thunder, I'm sure. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. In other words, they knew there was something supernatural, unusual happening. Okay. They knew that. And Jesus answered and he said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. What is he saying? He's saying this noise, this unusual sound, this tremendous is a sign. And it's for you. It's not for me. Yes, the father was speaking to him. And he was saying the truth. And he was saying something that perhaps in, in his humanity, Jesus needed to hear on some level, although he already knew it. But he was actually telling them, this sound that you are hearing is a sign. What was it a sign of? It's real simple. It was a sign to them that now, once again, God is about to be glorified. So pay attention. That's that's really what he's saying. That's the indicator. 
all right, that they heard that tremendous sound. The people also have a vital stake. Now, we, we've, we've been talking this morning primarily about Jesus and the Father. But the fact is that every human being has a tremendous stake in how God will be glorified next. It's already happened now, but I'm talking about in the in, in this uh, in the time frame in the timeline of the Gospel of John. Every human being is a vital stake in what in the tremendous world-shaking events that are about to occur and reveal the glory of God. Okay, verse thirty-one. Is that word now? Now, what judgment is upon this world? Now, what? The ruler of this world will be cast out. And verse 32, and I, Jesus, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, I know this is just two verses of the Bible. but These are the most amazing, the most all-inclusive Things that are being said, and remember, they're being said about now, meaning the hour that had come when Jesus was going to die and to be buried and be raised from the dead and return to his father. Now, at that point, when there, when Jesus was speaking, talking about the hour that had come, talking about his death and resurrection, he said, what? Judgment is upon this world. Judgment is a final thing, is it not? Like, for example, you have a, you have a court case. You have both sides, and then you have the final instructions to the jury, and then what do you have? A verdict, right? And then the judgment, okay, of announcing what the what if he's guilty, announcing the penalty. That's finality. Nothing, you know. Our our legal system, of course, they have all kinds of appeals, but not in God's. By the way, there's no when God makes a ruling, there ain't no appealing it. Just remember that. But in any event, it's it's a finality at a moment now. The hour had come, and the judgment is upon the world. We'll see what that is all about. And then not only that, so now you have this whole world, which is in rebellion against God, and you have its ruler. And guess what? His time came, too. Why? He will be cast out. <laughs> the earth-shattering event of the cross would, would carry the judgment of the world and the, and, and the casting out of Satan. But not only that. Then we do come into play. This is where the crowd has a tremendous stake. This is where every one of us has a tremendous stake. And everyone that you preach the gospel to has a tremendous stake. And I, Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Wow. The, the ruler of this whole fallen, crazy, horrible world, the world as a, as a, as a total thing, and all men. In these two verses. I mean, this is about as big as you can get things, really. Okay, All of that, what? Because of the hour that had come. And then in verse 33, he explains, okay, when he says, I am lifted up from the earth, he's saying that to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Namely, the cross. Namely, the cross. He would literally be lifted up, Right. And when he was lifted up on the cross, then he would be doing all these things right? in that in that in his time and death on the cross. Judgment came upon the whole world. The ruler of the world at that time was cast out. We'll see what that means. And then he draws all men to himself on the basis of his death. 
and we'll see what that's all about. But again, notice again how Jesus begins this description of these events. Notice again in verse 21, now. Right now, the hour has come. He says it twice. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. See, he's making it clear and and unmistakably true that these things actually happened. And they actually happened at the cross. And they're complete. They're finished. Okay? If the verdict has been given to the world and the ruler of this world, and it is done. It happened. That's important for us. And that's important for us to know. These things have already happened. Right? The world has already been judged. The God of this world has already been cast out. Now, we're going to see, I know maybe you're thinking at this point, well, gee, okay, if the, if the ruler of this world is cast out, well, I, why, do, why do we also know that he's still around and he's still d- trying to do all kinds of things? Well, that's why we've got to see what that word cast out means. Okay, but, but make no mistake that what happened at the cross with respect to the conflict between Jesus and Satan, okay, accomplished a tremendous, tremendous thing with respect to his victory over that ruler of this world. And, and, and I hope that when we, once again, many of us have studied this before, but if you haven't, even better. But I hope that helps you when you hear some of the lies out there about what's what Satan is doing or or, you know, even even things like Christians being possessed by the devil. That cannot happen. That cannot happen because the Lord defeated him at the cross. OK, and in so many other ways. There, let me say that there's much too much attention given to Satan and much too much lacking in the attention given to Jesus Christ. And that's a shame. <laughs> you got to know these things and you won't fall for that. There's no there's no reason for us to spend one instant worrying and being in fear of Satan and the principalities and power. Now, respect, yeah. Understanding though that that God has given us all of the armor that we need, okay? Yeah, I mean, because we we have to understand not only his victory, but also what that means and what he's given to us. Okay, so this is a really, really important subject that we're on today. So he says it twice. He's emphasizing now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out at the cross. He's emphasizing he wants everyone to know that he's going to accomplish that now in his time frame with his death. And the glory that came out of it comes out of it. And believe you me, all of these things happened at the perfect time, the fullness of time, the precise day and hour chosen by the Father. Now, for us, again, these things have already happened. They're finished once and for all. Judgment is upon this world. It's already happened and so forth. There are four things that Jesus describes here. And let me just I'll list them, even though you can see them, so you can see that there are four things. One, two, three, four. The judgment of this world. Okay. That's the first one. The casting out of the ruler of this world. 
That's the second one. Jesus being lifted up from the earth. That's the third one. And Jesus drawing all men to themselves. And these things are so momentous that it pays to spend a little time on each of them, distinguishing what happened. They're in a certain order. Let's go through it again. The judgment of this world is a judgment. The casting out of the ruler of this world, by the way, notice that first and foremost, he's clearing away all the evil. People wonder, why is there a lake of fire? Because God's going to clear away all the evil. If not, then then you'd have evil in the kingdom. You'd have evil in heaven. It's not going to happen. Right? Because Jesus draws all men to himself. But, of course, we know that doesn't mean that all men are going with him. Okay? First thing, judgment. What judgment? Here we have the world. We'll see what that is. And then we have the, the ruler of this world being cast out. With that accomplished and settled, then what do we have? Is lifted up from the earth. Okay, it's important. We won't spend as much time on that because I've already mentioned what that is. And then the final thing, drawing all men to himself. All of this surrounds what's happening at the cross. And so we're going to take a little time here in looking at this. Let's go back to verse 31. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, you might say, if, if, you, if you have a faulty understanding of that word world, you might say, well, how come it's still here? How come earth is still here if he's already judged it, right? It's not what it means. Okay, It doesn't mean the earth as a thing. It doesn't even mean the human race, except in a certain way. Except in a certain way. And we'll see that right, right now. What, does, what is the world here and, and define other places in the, in the Bible as well? Okay, so we'll go through this. The world is a sphere of operations. What does that mean? It means things happening in an organized way, things happening in an organized way according to certain rules or principles, okay? Make no mistake, it's fallen mankind that is in this system, in this sphere. It's a sphere of operations for fallen mankind. Notice this, though. Here's the key to understand about the world. As, as fallen men live in hostility to God. Do you live in hostility to God today? Oh, you may have some thoughts and anger sometimes. We're all human beings. We all still have the flesh in us, even though we're not in the flesh. But we don't live in hostility to God. You know, I don't know why. Because we're, there's already been a peace treaty signed on our behalf. Jesus Christ reconciled us to the Father. Oh, we were his enemies. But while we are his enemies, he gave us the son to die for us. And whoever believes in his son now reconciled to God forever. We will never be enemies to God again. We will never be have a hostile relationship with God ever, ever, ever. But the world does. The world does. So not only is it this ongoing hostility, but it comes out. It comes out how? In the works of Satan. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus talked to the I believe it was the Pharisees who said, you are of your father, the devil, because you do the works of the devil. That's the world. Make no mistake. That's why we can't be friends to the world. The world is doing the works of Satan and, of course, of the flesh. And that's that's what the world is all about. It's nothing more or less. It's God hating, flesh loving, Satan obeying, fallen man. Okay, one more time. The world is the sphere of operations of fallen mankind as it lives in hostility to God 
and doing does the works of Satan and the flesh. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. There's a great way to learn about the world, these three verses here. And also reminds us that there was a time when we were in the world. And we loved it. We loved it before we became a believer in Christ. Make no mistake, notice Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, now he's talking about believers now, right? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you notice the key word that formerly walked. That's why you're no longer God's enemy. You formerly, you used to, walked according to the course of what? This world. That's, that's what we want to understand more about this morning. Well, the course of this world is according to who? The prince of the power of the air. That's, of course, Satan, the devil. Okay. So there you have it. There's a, there's a way in which people live that is according to the prince of the power of the year of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Okay, That's unbelievers, by the way. Not us. Verse 3. However, among them we too all formerly did what? Lived in the lusts of our flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature born that way. Children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, I'm real happy that that Ephesians doesn't end in verse three, of course, because then we find that God, when we were dead, made us alive and he raised us with Christ. But here, these first three verses give a pretty good description of the world, that it's a way of living, walking it is according to the to Satan. It is there's an attitude, a spirit that is working in the unbeliever now even. And we used to be this and, and, and the world involves living in the lust of the flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. And indeed, it's because people are born children of wrath. Well, in our passage this morning, though, we know one thing, and that is that that world that I just described to you already had its day of reckoning, already done. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Yes, in the world you'll have trouble. I've overcome the world. What a tremendous thing to know. What a tremendous thing to rejoice about oh yeah this world is a is a, a trash okay it, it causes all kinds of troubles and it's getting worse and boy oh boy you know this is why gosh we should spend less time looking at the news we really should it's it's not going to change it doesn't matter who you vote for it doesn't matter how many protests you get involved in. Why? Because the world ain't changing. It's getting worse. All right? If there's one thing I'm sure of, the word of God says it's that. Not only that, but the flesh is getting worse. Now you tell me how you have unbelievers that are dominated by the flesh and and living according to the prince of the power of the year are going to fix anything. They're not. So don't do that. Oh, I know we're tempted to do that. I'm going to fall for it, too. I'm going to read a headline. But really, it's a waste of time. It really kind of is. I mean, you should know certain things for your own life. But to think somehow that this is going to get fixed before Christ comes back is a pipe dream. This is not going to happen. But the fact that the world has already had its day of reckoning, 
is, is why Paul could say something that he did. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Galatians 6, 14. Well, at this point, I'm not going to do what I did last week and keep your overtime. Not, but that also means that we're, we're going to continue on this next week. Because there's a lot more to see here, right? What a tremendous verse, right? Overcoming or, or the world being judged, Satan being cast out, Jesus being lifted up, draw all men to himself. Hmm. So we'll get as far as we can, but I'm not going to drop off this stuff and move on because it's too important. Galatians 6, 14. But may it never be, Paul writes, that I would boast. Notice the only thing he's going to boast in now except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which, through what? His cross, and only his cross. Notice the next two words. The world, that whole system of operations according to the lust of the flesh, engaged in by children, by children, nature, by of wrath. I'm not saying that right. By, na- by nature, children of wrath. That whole thing, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, And that alone, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, for something to be crucified, I mean, there's there's a lot of things you could say about that. I mean, it does it does involve the day of reckoning, the judgment. Clearly, the cross was meant as a judgment and a punishment. So in that sense, yes, the world has been crucified to all believers in Christ. But it also means it stopped. It stopped having the effect that it used to have. That indeed, you can literally turn your back on the world. And that's what Paul did. He, he criticized his friend Demas who, when, he, when, when Demas lived right in there and had a great time in the world. And he said, he's loving this present world. He doesn't understand that he's already been crucified to it. And then also, I to the world. I to the world. The world's dead to me. I'm dead to the world. Not in the way of somebody oversleeping, by the way. He's dead to the world. No, I mean, I mean, dead, cut off. Can get no, really nothing out of it. Okay? All right. But that's also something else that we have to understand. Jesus was literally victorious over all the forces of this world, and he was so the day he died on the cross. We don't have to summon him now. Get us victory over the world. Sounds great, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like a great prayer? Ignorant. (laughs) Ignorant. He was victorious over all the forces of this world the day he died on the cross. The day he died on the cross. And that is, by the way, why every believer in Christ has also already, already overcome the world. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Verse four. 1 John chapter five, verse four. I know I sound like a broken record, but I pray and hope that more and more people understand that they've already overcome the world. Already done. So all this fussing and fuming and 
thinking we're going to fix things and anxiety. It, we've already overcome the world, gang. By the cross of Jesus Christ, it is finished. Look at 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 4. For whatever is born of God, or really whoever is born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Notice that. It's our faith. It wasn't any works, right? It was our faith, simply believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. By that and that alone, we have a victory. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What faith? Well, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice he goes on. This, Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who came by water and blood. And water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And that blood is twofold here. It's also a statement of his humanity, but most importantly, it's the blood of Christ that has conquered and has redeemed us and has reconciled us to the Father. Okay, that's all we can do at this point in time because I don't want to keep you late this morning. I know in this day and age that can be a challenge to concentrate as long as I ask you to. So I appreciate that. It's good for you. It's really great for you. There's nothing better. I mean, it, it, if you think about not, I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anybody. I want you to think about, okay, I noticed that what are the things that you can easily spend an hour and a half on? You can concentrate on. All right. I mean, think about that. All right. And then I want, I don't want you to think about how sometimes we think, man, is this guy ever going to stop talking this morning? No, it's after 11 o'clock. I mean, come on. I got a brunch date or whatever you got. I don't know. And you can, you know me. I want you to live and enjoy the things God has given you. But I also want you to have a good sense of priorities, gang. Priorities. Okay. There is nothing like gathering together as members of the body of Christ and hearing the words, the powerful, life-giving words of God in the Bible. So I'm glad we did it today. I'm going to do it again Thursday. I'm going to do it again next Sunday, God willing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's amazing how much you can say in two verses of your word, and we think about all the rest of it and marvel and, and scratch our heads sometimes at ourselves thinking, why would we ever think that we know it all or that we don't need to go anymore to it? It's amazing. Just two verses. But most importantly, Father, we ask that we would take these things to heart, celebrate them, marvel at who you are and what you've accomplished in your son. But also understand that you've given us these facts for a purpose so that we may know who we are. So we may live victoriously in this world and that we may be be bold in telling the world about who you are, and who your son is and and bold to live out with trust and confidence and faith so that we don't fall for the fear and the lies that are out there. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.